This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker will have Ravi Mehta, the ex-chief product officer at Tinder, and he also worked at TripAdvisor and many other great companies. And in this episode, we're mainly going to focus on his experience at Tinder because, you know, uh, I hear tons and tons of pitches about those new great, great uh, dating apps that I'm pretty sure will not, never take off and I'm, I'm getting tired of that. So I decided to make an episode with Ravi about uh, how to differentiate yourself from competitors and if you're trying to create something in such a heavily competitive field as uh, dating, what should you do and how can you stand out from that crowd? And of course, we're going to talk about uh, Ravi's experience at Tinder and in other uh, companies he worked at. But... The main focus is on dating apps and similar uh, technologies that are developed by multiple startups. So Ravi, I'll ask you off by you giving us some background on yourself and on the project that you're working on right now. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. I'm excited for the conversation today. Um, so I'm Ravi. I uh, was most recently the chief product officer at Tinder. I've been uh, in the technology space my entire life. I actually started programming um, when I was nine years old. And back then, there wasn't much to do on computers other than other than programming. And so I started building um, games uh, all through school and then into, into high school. Um, I started a game company <clears throat> in high school. Uh, and then from there, I actually joined uh, Microsoft. And I joined at a time when um, you know, when I joined Microsoft, they'd said we're going to be making a multi-billion dollar investment into games. We haven't revealed what it is yet, but we're looking for people that have games experience. Um, and then shortly after I joined Microsoft, they announced uh, that they were making an investment in Xbox. So I joined the Xbox team as one of the first 20 or so people on the team. I spent a lot of time thinking about Xbox Live, um, one of the things that Microsoft felt like it could do really uniquely within the video game console space. <clears throat> was think about um, the the internet and where it was going, um, and really bring multi game uh, multiplayer gaming to uh, the next level, which is something that um, Sony and Nintendo and the other players in the space didn't have as much um, experience with. And so I was there for about six years. I worked on both the the platform side on Xbox Live as well as some of the content. Um, that really made use of the Xbox's multiplayer capabilities. Um, from there, I went to, to business school. I went to MIT Sloan for um, my MBA. Uh, and then afterwards, I wanted to try something completely different. So I joined a small startup uh, focused on lead generation for the financial services industry. The thing that really attracted to me that that attracted me to that was um, a opportunity to do something really small, to build the team, to help build the build the technology, to work in a space that I'd never worked in um, before. So we did that for about a year and a half. Um, unfortunately, that was around 2008 timeframe, so not a great time um, to be focused on the financial services um, industry. Um, from there, I joined um, a friend of mine, um, uh, Sean Lindsay, who's an entrepreneur in Boston, um, as well as Brian Balfour, who's the CEO of Reforge. Uh, to start a company focused on the social gaming space. Uh, and we ran that for about five years. Um, really interesting uh, space at a really interesting time. Um, we raised a lot of capital. We, we eventually sold that to um, a company called Tapjoy um, on the West Coast. 
And from there, I went to TripAdvisor, where I led the the core consumer product team at Trip um, during a really interesting phase um, in the company. Uh, TripAdvisor was newly rolled out from Expedia, so it had become its own uh, independent public company for the first time. Uh, And as a result, there were a whole set of strategic opportunities that TripAdvisor had available um, that were not available when it was part of Expedia. So it was really interesting to work um, at sort of the intersection of various parts of, of travel um, <clears throat> to bring a completely new model for travel um, into being where TripAdvisor for the first time added the ability to book hotels and to book restaurants and to book um, uh, attractions. And so it was really positioning itself um, as an Amazon marketplace for travel rather than um, just a, a review-oriented um, platform. From uh, TripAdvisor, I moved on to, to Facebook. I felt like, um, you know, having worked in travel, it was really exciting, but I felt like there was a lot happening um, within internet and mobile that I didn't fully understand and wanted to get a better understanding of what was going on, particularly with young users. Uh, so I joined Facebook, um, a team focused specifically on teenagers and how they were using social media and how Facebook should uh, position their products um, in order to make sure that they weren't losing engagement with with teens. So we spent a lot of time looking at the entire landscape of what Gen Z is using, think about thinking about how Facebook fits within that landscape. Um, and then I also spent a lot of time on the M&A strategy for Facebook within the youth space um, and thinking about what um, interesting acquisitions Facebook could make um, in order to bolster its um, position with younger users. Um, one of the things that we did was we bought TBH, which was a, a fast-growing social network for high school students. Um, and then from there, about a year ago, I joined Tinder as chief product officer. Um, a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was um, you know, spending a lot of time really understanding uh, Gen Z and, and Tinder's always had um, a really good brand with Gen Z. Um, and one of the key things for the company is evolving the product in order to make sure that it's really staying up to date with the latest things um, that are happening with Gen Z. Mm-hmm. That's that's a really impressive background. I'm, I'm really happy that you're here on Fundraising Radio and that you could actually dedicate some time to participate on this show. And first, I would like to discuss the key topic of the whole podcast, which is fundraising. So uh, you have raised, as you said, a lot of money for uh, that gaming company. Can you go a little bit in depth into how you how you were doing this because uh, it seems like you worked a lot with uh, Gen Z. And from my experience, investors don't really like Gen Z as it's just, you know, extremely unpredictable, unpredictable, and uh, also hard to monetize sometimes. So how do you fundraise for that? It's interesting because I think that um, businesses that are focused on younger users, as well as entertainment businesses, um, are things that um, VCs have sort of a love-hate relationship with. Um, there's uh, some VCs that just don't understand the space and they worry about the dynamics in the space. Um, I think anytime you're doing something with younger users or you're doing something with entertainment, um, it does have a hit-driven component to it. And VCs are already in a hit-driven business, so you add in additional risk and sometimes it becomes too much for um, a lot of VCs to want to take the risk. At the same time, um, really, you know, you can see there's a lot of explosively popular and well monetizing businesses that have targeted younger users and grown from there. Facebook being one of them, um, you know, Facebook started as a platform specifically for college students. Um, Snapchat started as a platform for teenagers and has grown from there. Some of the entertainment companies in the space now are some of the most valuable companies in the world. You look at 
um, Epic and Fortnite and the, the rate of growth on that business has really been been staggering. And so I think the first thing for people that are looking to fundraise within this space is to really filter out what VCs you're talking to. There's going to be some uh, VCs that you know have a background in enterprise or SaaS, or if you look at their past investments, they fit a certain profile where they can really understand and quantify the risk in a much more um, uh, clear uh, and quantitative way. Whereas quantifying the risk in entertainment and Gen Z oriented products is a bit more of an art than a science. And so what we want to do first, I think, is look at VCs that have made investments in the businesses that have uh, a similar uh, dynamic uh, so that you're talking to the right people. And when you get to the right people, you will find that there are certain VCs that really understand Gen Z. They've made investments in the space. They've made money in the space. Um, and they're looking for the next breakout businesses. So I think that's the first thing is to target the right venture capitalists. The second thing is to think really deeply about your business and to try to mitigate out as much of the risk as possible. There are definitely um, parts of building um, these types of businesses that are a little bit like, you know, capturing magic in a bottle. And, you know, that's that's just part of the dynamics of building things that are for consumers. I think that applies to any consumer businesses, not just Gen Z um, consumer businesses. But there are ways in which you can uh, mitigate that risk. And I think part of it is a big part of it is really figuring out what niche you're serving um, and serve that niche really, really well. Build something that is retentive with a small group of users and figure out how to scale it from there. I think a lot of um, entrepreneurs make this mistake, especially in consumer, of going too big too soon. And then you have a product whose strategy is diluted across too many different market segments. But if you can create something that for a certain set of consumers is incredibly retentive and valuable um, mm-hmm. and scale from there, that's a much better um, that's a much better way to go. You know, and in some sense, that's what Facebook did. They created a social network specifically for uh, Harvard students, not even college students, um, got that to work really well and then figured out what about that model they could scale um, and create a pattern for across multiple different um, universities and then across, um, you know, users globally. And so I think that's something that um, consumer entrepreneurs need to spend a lot of time doing. Right, right. So here I want to, that, that's great advice, actually. And uh, hopefully most of our listeners will listen to that before reaching out to investors. And here I want to move on to your experience at Tinder because that's probably one of the most interesting parts for me. I never really talked to anyone from Tinder or from any other uh, big dating app. But that topic is really popular. A lot, a lot of startups are trying to build new types of dating apps. You know, they're basically whatever you can imagine, it's out there. Someone's really trying to build that. So what do you think is the major issue with that specific field? I think there's a, there's a couple of really um, compelling things about the dating space. One, the use case is very clear. You know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get two people connected and into a meaningful conversation. Even during coronavirus, that hasn't changed. Um, people still, you know, even though they're not meeting in real life, they still have this desire for connection. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that has surprised people about uh, coronavirus is that the online dating companies have done well. And that's because people want social connection in whatever form it can take, especially during a time 
of social distancing. Um, so that's one of the compelling things. I think the other compelling thing about the dating industry um, is that, you know, if you can generate um, that for people, then you can monetize it. You have a business. There's no sort of experimentation that you need to do around um, how do I actually build a profitable company that's a dating company? The dating companies monetize incredibly well on a per user basis. And that's because they're solving a need for people that they're both willing to pay for. And then there's precedence that they're paying for it. Um, so there's a couple of really compelling things that I think um, <clears throat> make dating businesses interesting for um, for entrepreneurs. But there's also a couple of things that make it really difficult. I think the most um, important one is that dating businesses, like a lot of other social businesses, um, have a really important network effect. People aren't going to spend their time on 20 different dating apps. They may use more than one. They're probably going to use two or three, but they want to make sure that the time that they're putting into each dating app is really going to pay dividends in terms of the number of matches that they get back. And so one of the reasons Tinder um, continues to be as popular as it is, is it just works. Um, people get a lot of matches. And so they know if they put a profile on Tinder, it's going to help them meet new people. Whereas if there's a smaller dating site that not a lot of people are using, um, then they know that they're going to get fewer matches. So I think the earlier advice about focusing on a niche before you focus on a, on scale is really important in the dating space. If you try to go head to head with Tinder or Bumble or any of these other dating products for, you know, an entire region, entire country or the entire world, um, you're just not going to succeed. You're not going to have nearly the, the critical mass of users that you need in order to create a compelling matching experience. Mm -hmm. So what you really need to do is figure out what's the niche of people that you want to serve better than Tinder serving or better than than Bumble or some of these other apps are serving. And ultimately, if you look back at history, these apps did actually take that niche strategy. Tinder served a very specific user in Los Angeles um, that was young, that was single, that wanted to meet each other in a new way, that was mobile forward. Um, and, you know, built an initial experience that had critical mass with that niche and then grew from there. And so, um, you know, it's really important for dating entrepreneurs to understand that it's not easy to create a dating site in part because, you know, the incumbent players have network effects at their advantage and you're somewhat, um, you know, you're innovating into a into a headwind. Um, and then if they do decide that they want to do that, to be really crystal clear about who your first thousand users are, what you're solving for them that the other dating apps are, aren't solving, um, and get to critical mass, get to a, a product that has product market fit with that niche before you try to try to scale. Right, right. The, the advice is great. And I think there's a lot of thoughts, uh, food for those who want to build something in dating app uh, related fields. But here I wanted to ask you, about how many people actually ask you to become their advisors. So because of your enormous experience in all those great companies and specifically in Tinder, how, how many requests do you get to, you know, help someone with a question, get an introduction to someone at Tinder or just to become their advisor? I get a, I get a number of requests. So I get a handful um, every day. Um, you know, I try with each one to actually read the quest and, and figure out whether or not it's something where I can add a little bit of value. I don't have time to take on a lot of 
um, advisor advisor roles. But often, you know, if someone reaches out, I can point them in the right direction in terms of um, some people that might or, or give them some feedback on their on their pitch deck or that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, it's definitely you know, it's nice that people are reaching out to me and and seeking um, advice. I do, you know, when I've got the time, I do love um, talking to entrepreneurs and, and helping them with their, their businesses. And so I try to help out where I can. Um, but it's definitely, uh, something that's difficult given, given time constraints. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll get back to this topic later here. I wanted to talk a little about your experience in mergers and acquisitions at Facebook. So how many companies did you acquire in while you were in Facebook? So Facebook doesn't make a lot of acquisitions and I wasn't there for too long. So we acquired one company while I was there. Um, and we also looked, we did due diligence across a number of other companies. I've also been involved with other due diligence work. I did that at, at Tinder. Um, I did a significant amount at TripAdvisor. We made a couple of um, important acquisitions at TripAdvisor. Um, you know, I think that's one of the, that's some of the experience that I look back on and is, uh, the most interesting. For me in my career, um, in part because it does, you know, when you're at a larger company, it does give you the opportunity to connect with entrepreneurs and see what's happening um, within within the market. Um, it also gives you it's an interesting um, exercise in thinking strategically about, you know, when you take two independent companies and join them together, what are the synergies in this strategy and how you, how can you make um, the sum of the parts greater than uh, the whole? Um, and so, you know, I think that, uh, those are, those are things that I look back on as, um, being really interesting, being a learning, learning experiences. I also think for entrepreneurs, it's a very important thing to think, um, you know, maybe not from day one, but, you know, once you start to fundraise to think about what your exit opportunities look like for, um, for your business, um, and what companies you would want to pair with. I think a lot of companies do start out with, you know, we want this to be really big. We want to IPO, um, but it's hard enough to get a company to to be successful in the first place. Let alone, um, you know, get, building a company that eventually IPOs is somewhat of a lottery ticket. And you know, absolutely, it's something that you should shoot for. But it's also worth thinking about, you know, what are the M and A opportunities for your business, and how does your company fit within an existing landscape? I think that exercise can also be really valuable for entrepreneurs who are trying to refine their business model. Um, when you look at the incumbent players within um, within the business, um, you can often find white space areas where you can innovate um, by thinking about, you know, what an eventual acquisition would look like and what valuable um, asset or capability would you bring to um, an acquirer. And that can often be an interesting um, competitive or strategic exercise to do for entrepreneurs as they're refining their business model. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's really a great exercise. I personally like to, I personally recommend founders sometimes to think like who can acquire you eventually, because it just, you know, first of all, it gives you some hope that you'll be acquired. <laughs> and secondly, uh, it does refine the business model, I think. So uh, it's important, but I'm curious, how were you sourcing those companies at Facebook, at TripAdvisor that you wanted to acquire. So how did you find them or did they actually find you themselves? I think a lot of times companies um, will have a thesis about a particular area that they want to invest in. So when I was at Facebook, our thesis was around um, investing in things that are um, high retention, high engagement, apps that um, young people are using and that 
fit really nicely with the um, Facebook business model. <clears throat> and so as a result, um, you know, there were only a handful of companies. If you, if you map out the space, it's probably 30 or 40 companies that fit into that. And so, um, you know, those companies were, were known to us. Facebook was not um, looking at earlier stage at a point where it would be harder to actually know what the companies are. Um, also, one of the advantages of Facebook, Facebook does have um, really good data science and market research and market um, analysis capabilities, which can help you understand, um, you know, what's happening with people in general, like what are people using on, on mobile? So that was really helpful. Um, at, um, at TripAdvisor, it was more of an organic process that one of the nice things about the travel space is it's a uh, relatively tight knit space with a lot of entrepreneurs that are repeat entrepreneurs in the space. And so there's an interesting flow of opportunities that just comes from the network of having been in the space. Um, it's also an interesting space like dating, whereas if you can generate demand, you can almost certainly generate monetization. So, um, you know, oftentimes the companies that are doing really well from a demand um, standpoint, even if they're not quite monetizing yet, um, have a lot of buzz within the industry. And so um, it's easier to find players uh, that way. And so it's a little bit different than like what a VC would do in terms of their deal flow um, or the opposite side for an entrepreneur, because um, the companies that you would be interested in have a higher profile than seed stage companies. Absolutely. So that's, that's true. And here I wanted to move on to the thing that I already touched on to real quick, but I wanted to go a little bit deep, deeper in that topic and it's specifically uh, successful founders and just, you know, uh, successful people in a specific field as a source of capital and advice. So you said that you advise plenty of startups, but do you invest as an angel investor in those startups? I've done a, a handful of investments. Um, the, the investments I've done have been in areas that I know well, so social or, or, um, or travel, um, you know, the travel businesses are going through a tough, a tough time oh, right yeah. now. And um, the investments that I've done have really been something where it's less about, I think this is the maximally efficient way to deploy capital and more about, I think there's a really interesting entrepreneur here. I think there's a really interesting idea here and I want to su support it early on because the investments that I've done have been, you know, very early seed stage um, ideas. Uh, I think if I were to, and it's something that I've been doing primarily with the goal of supporting um, the entrepreneurs and not thinking necessarily about managing a portfolio and maximizing the return um, from the portfolio. I think I would approach it a little bit differently if, I, if that was, that was the goal. Um, but I've really enjoyed doing those investments. It's a great way to support entrepreneurs. It's a great way to understand what's happening within the landscape. Um, and, you know, especially for early stage company, kind of the right money or the right advice at the right time can go a long way. Absolutely. That's, completely right and i love when people invest in you know team uh and you know ideas as i myself work for a venture studio and we invest in idea stage basically in founders because ideas don't really matter that much but how do you choose who to invest in so when you get uh, first of all how do you source your deals do you get mostly inbound or do you actually reach out yourself I don't do any outbound, so it's mostly inbound from people I know that will refer to refer me to people that are raising. Um, I think the the point you make about investing in entrepreneurs and not investing in ideas is a really important one. You know, at the end of the day, especially early on, good companies are going to pivot. 
um, and the business that actually succeeds with them um, is probably only has some minor relationship to the idea that they originally started out with. And that's really important. I think entrepreneurs who are successful um, master the ability to test and learn to figure out what the market really wants. Um, and so the entrepreneurs that uh, I look for and I like to invest in um, think about markets a little bit differently than um, than everyone else. Um, and so, you know, I think ultimately there's a lot of um, sort of lemming-like startup behavior in, in Silicon Valley where, you know, there's something that's hot like chatbots and then everyone goes and wants to start a chatbot, but people aren't really thinking constructively about what customers really need in that space and what those businesses are going to look like. Meanwhile, there's problems that people are having outside of Silicon Valley that are really real problems that need to be solved that may not be getting attention because um, they fall outside the typical profile of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and the typical problems that Silicon Valley solves for. And so I like entrepreneurs that bring a different perspective to the table, either because they know something different than other people know or because their life experience um, highlights an opportunity that a lot of other entrepreneurs wouldn't um, wouldn't be aware of. Right, right. Yeah, and a great example of that is actually a new guy here in Los Angeles who I think was doing something like dry cleaning for subscription, which is not, not a new idea, but you know, it, it turned out that it was not present here in Los Angeles. I think a very specific part of Los Angeles, so he's covering, I think, either northern uh, part of LA or southern, but it doesn't really matter. The point is that he, I think, is making over 500K in annual recover revenue by just doing this thing that wasn't present here in LA. And I mean, who would think of dry cleaning when you're working in uh, Silicon Valley, you know, in tech, because it's not tech. But the point is that uh, it still makes money and it's not in chatbots, you know. So, all right, we'll come here to the last question and then we'll wrap it up. And this last question is what I like to do recently is doing these small call to action things to my listeners. So what would you recommend them doing as soon as this episode is over? So one specific thing that they just need to do in order to, you know, get better to fundraising or get better, get closer to find a good co-founder or whatever you think is necessary for them to do. I think the most important thing that tends to get overlooked at all levels within the tech industry is talking to customers. Um, you know, there's so much emphasis today on big data and machine learning and natural language processing um, that, you know, people tend to assume that the insights are going to come from data, whereas often the most interesting and actionable insights come from talking to customers. <clears throat> and it may not be statistically significant. I think that's what people worry about. Well, you know, if I only talk to one customer, I'm only solving that one customer's needs. That's absolutely okay. Because if you solve that one customer's needs, there's almost certainly a thousand or 10,000 other people like them. And so I think the, the call to action I would have for folks that are in the fundraising stage um, as an immediate action today or tomorrow um, is just go talk to people, figure out, you know, what, what are you trying to build? What's your thesis about what their problems are? Talk to, about, talk to them about what they're trying to solve for um, and start to build for that. And, you know, ultimately, if you can build that community or that product that really sings for 500 people, then it becomes infinitely easier to figure out how to scale that to 5 million people. 
Um, I think the challenge is a lot of entrepreneurs want to go big really, really soon. And so they create something mildly interesting to 100,000 people or even 5 million people, but not incredibly interesting to 500 people. And so that would be the first thing is get to really know know your customers. I talked to an entrepreneur um, a couple of years ago at Facebook who was building a social network for college students, and he had graduated a few years um, earlier, uh, but decided to go live on campus with um, a friend of his um, in order to really immerse himself in the college experience and make sure that, you know, every day he was talking to college students to really understand how they were interacting with each other so that he could better build the product. And so that's a really great example of someone who's immersing themselves in the needs of their customers. And as a result, is going to have a much better understanding of what they want and how to create a compelling product for them than um, you know someone who's who's thinking about the problem abstractly or using data or market user research reports or thinking about you know you know what are the trends in the tech industry and trying to solve for that. Absolutely, and that's truly a great example. And I think that's a great advice. You know, just talk to your customers. It doesn't matter if uh, the day is uh, statistically significant or not. No one cares about statistics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I personally have a horrible bias towards statistics. You know, when you said statistics, statistically <laughs> insignificant, I immediately remember about the problem in statistics I could not solve today in the morning. And it's just, you know, it's giving me PTSD. So don't, don't say those words, please. <laughs> but seriously, the advice was great. We'll wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Ravi, for coming up and for taking your time to participate. I think this was a wonderful episode. We touched into so many topics and completely different fields, really. We touched on to uh, working with Gen Z, working in dating apps, uh, related fields, how to get acquired, do you need to think about the acquisition from day one? And uh, we touched on to a couple more, which I already forgot. <laughs> but <laughs> I will do my best to write a good summary in the description of this episode, and I will include links to a uh, couple of resources that Robbie touched on to. So if you're curious to see what Robbie is up to, uh, just check the episode description and you'll see it there. So thanks a lot, Robbie, and have a great day. Thank you. You too.